hello. Hey, it's me. Yes? Uh, Al. Mm, who are you trying to reach? Sean. Shawnee. What number are you trying to reach? Sean's number. Well, I think you have the wrong number. Oh, fuck. It happens. Take it easy. Hello? Hey, it's me. Oh, fuck, wrong number again? Uh, so why'd you dial it again? Uh, I need a lift from the airport. My bad. Look, I gotta go. Wait, 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 wait. You like new metal movies? Uh-huh. Oh, cool. Which ones? Uh, I don't know. Do you have any favorite Rob Zombie movies? Um, Halloween. Yeah, it's pretty good. You know, the one with the guy in the white mask who oh, walks no. around I and stalks yeah, babysitters? Yeah. Yep. Black Myers. What's yours? Ooh. Oh, jeez, I don't really know. It's kind of hard to pick. Maybe... One of the, yeah, I don't know, maybe one of the Resident Evil films. They're pretty cool. Wow, well, the first one was, but the rest sucked. You should listen to Take a Look Around. They review every Resident Evil movie and talk about the intersection of new metal and Hollywood. No. Oh. Well, can you, uh, can you pick me up from the airport? What did you say? Come on. Look, I have to go. See ya. Can I borrow 50? Welcome back to Take a Look Around. My name is Shawnee Campion and you are listening to a podcast that is at the intersection of Hollywood and New Metal. Now, before I continue, unfortunately, for Take a Look Around uh, Heads, Al Bates, longtime fan favorite, was bumped off in Take a Look Around Part 2. So we are joined by uh, probably the, the best person for the job for the film we're doing today. It's none other than my friend Gus McGrath. How are you, Gus? I'm great. You know, I'm, I'm feeling like Parker Posey to Al's Courtney Cox, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm hot, fresh blood coming in, you know, doing him a better. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Now, I've sp- you've let the cat out of the bag early, if oh. anyone has paid attention to the cast list for this film or read the name of the episode prior to hitting <laughs> play. We are doing none other than the terminally maligned Scream 3 from the year 2000. Now, uh, Gus, there's a reason I picked you for the Scream franchise, isn't there? What is on your arm? Oh, yeah. I I didn't even make the connection. I have the word Scream tattooed on my arm, which was the the first tattoo I, I got. I don't really even know why. I was just like, hell yeah. I think it was in reference to like a... Um, a Dennis Cooper poem, but like also I'm I like thought it was the movie. That's why I picked you. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, hell yeah, I'll talk about scary things. I mean, I, I I have loved Scream for a long time. I mean, like, as a as a teenager who was very into horror movies, like I was definitely more in the kind of like 80s, like slashes, but there's a lot more kind of, you know, like Nightmare on Elm Street has like body horror, like kind of uh special effects vibes going on and so like a lot of the 90s stuff because i grew up in the like 2000s missed a lot of that stuff and wasn't as involved but the kind of legacy of wes craven meant that i was like super on board with these movies and the way that they become like 
text immediately of like horror canon. I personally, this the era of the Scream clone from the late 90s up until about 2003 that ran parallel to a lot of the new metal franchise and there's and probably new metal wouldn't properly exist without the influence of Scream on the horror genre in terms of uh, as a film genre. I, I, it's my favorite. It's my favorite type of film. Like I, the Final Destination franchise is easily my favorites of all time. Like, fuck yeah! I think a lesser known one that I, I cannot stress the praises of is Disturbing Behavior with Katie Holmes. Have you ever seen that one at all? No, see, and that's the thing, like Final Destination I've seen, but so many of these I haven't seen. But the thing that's weird, and I'm like, I'm kind of both frightened to get your take on this, but also like keen, is that the thing that's so strange about Scream is it's like meta. It's a film that knows what's going on, but it becomes so like proliferated that it's like it almost doesn't feel self-referential anymore. Like it becomes, I guess this is like the the text, hasn't it? Yeah, and it's I guess it's like, you know, the prevalence of Kevin Williams. I mean, also, like, actually, the faculty fucking rules, I have to say. That's oh, absolutely. Like, so good. I, I think you're totally right that Scream started its life as, like, a satirical uh, take on what was becoming an incredibly tired genre, but it was so prolific and so... It had such a legacy to leave behind that the Scream clone and Scream itself has become as much text as any other Wes Craven film or any other horror film. And its DNA can be found, I'd still say today in like, you know, films. Like there is pre-Scream and post-Scream. And this is the thing that's weird. Like Netflix movies now, like teen Netflix movies are like, they're still Scream. I mean, there was that fucked up Scream TV show that's like, awful but i was really into oh i Um, haven't had a chance to check that out is it worth a watch hell yeah it's like it's it's fucking ridiculous but like it's pretty good it turns into like it just becomes a point where there's like a halloween special at the end and it just becomes like scooby-doo which is kind (laughs) of the vibe of this movie like i think this movie is underserved which i mean i i guess we'll get back to it but like i like how kind of blatant it is and especially like the wes craven thing like i remember reading about nightmare on elm street and like even like Nightmare on Elm Street was apparently perceived as meta at the time because like by having everything as dreams, you could be like, is it real? Is it the dream? Like it's, I feel like Wes Craven like kind of maybe hates at points that he's making horror films. Like, well, he was, wasn't he brought up Mormon or like extremely oh. like, oh, street Baptist. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think Baptist, one of the down Whoa. South real ones. And he didn't, start making films till he was late in his 30s and he went from porn straight into last house on the left so much of his like early stuff is just like so raw and intense isn't it well yeah like last house on the left is like a ingmar bergman ripoff but then also like i was like kind of skimming over new nightmare this morning because it like feels like a pretty helpful like you know analog to this but i was like for a guy who really likes ingmar bergman it's not like the most like beautifully shot ever like it's it's weird his taste is outstripped by his abilities in some ways but i i think he's i think he's fantastic i'm a huge fan of new nightmare i'm a huge fan of all the scream franchise which which is funny because the film we're going to be talking about today is the redheaded stepchild of the franchise isn't it because i haven't watched it again like all the original three scream films i watched so much as a teenager that it's like hard for me to 
kind of assess them and i was like oh am i gonna come in and this is gonna be really bad but like screen three has character kind of distinct character yeah it's let's play the trailer and let's get stuck straight into it California Women's Crisis Counseling. My name is Laura. How can I help you? Laura, I do have a crisis. I've killed someone, Laura. Are you listening to me? Huh? Who is this? Just one question. Do you think it's over, Sydney? Do you? Whoever it is, is now taking credit for Maureen Prescott's murder. But we know who killed Maureen Prescott. Billy Loomis and Stu Marker. I mean, they even told Sydney how they did it. Maybe there is a third killer. Guys, this was about cotton. We are not in any danger. We are not in any danger, says Candy, page 15. Who the fuck is this? Somebody who'd kill to know where Sydney Prescott is. What do you know about trilogies? Well, all I know about movie films is that in the one, all bets are off. Do you want to have this conversation with a polygraph? Is that a threat, detective? It's a threat. You'll know it. Was that a threat? Here's how I see it. I've got no house, no bodyguard, no movie, and I'm being stalked. Because someone was to kill me? No, because someone was to kill you. So now, starting now, I go where you go. That way, if someone was to kill me, I'll be with you. And since they really want to kill you, they won't kill me. They'll kill you. Make sense? None. You are dealing with the concluding chapter of a trilogy. One, you got a killer who's going to be superhuman. Number two, anyone including the main character can die. This means you sit. Gail, Dewey, whoever, um, call me back. I can only hear myself. I only hear you too, Sydney. I am not dreaming. I am not crazy. He was there in Woodsboro. It's not Woodsboro, Sydney. Looks like Stab 3 is back in production. You gotta be praying this movie keeps going. Okay, so Scream 3 takes place about three years after the events of the original film. Uh, We are transplanted away from Woodsboro, the sleepy little town of Scream 1 and 2, and taken to the big lights and big city of Hollywood, Sin City, where we uh, get Cotton Weary, Leif Schreiber's character from the first two films, who's, he's probably had like the worst run of luck anyone can ever get. Like he's been wrongfully accused of murder, uh, just kind of like run over the coals, but he's now managed to find like, some success in his life as like a cheesy talk show host. I thought it was like, you know, like talk radio. It sounds like he's like real controversial. He's like, yeah, you know. they made him out to be this like bad boy kind of thing. And his outfit is like it, right from the get go. The outfits in this film are just out of fucking control. And Cotton Weary is wearing an all white Miami Vice suit. I also want to shout out that his girlfriend, I was like, is this why I'm, because in my head, I was like, is this why I'm being asked on the episode? Serena's mom from Gossip Girl is in the opening scene and you need a gay person to acknowledge that so i was like 
<laughs> I thought that's why I was being called in to say, yes, Kelly Rutherford, Lily Vanderwoodson is is absolutely serving in the beginning of this film. <laughs> <laughs> well, she got upgraded from uh, from the film. She was originally cast just to play a corpse, but script rewrites in the film meant that this opening scene had to be cobbled together in the editing uh, room because Cotton Weary was never supposed to die at the start. Um, they were going to subvert their own opening sequences where someone where you think the main one of the main characters is going to live, but they get bumped off. So they were like, oh, we'll get a main character in there. Unfortunately, Cotton Weary is served up on a platter with his girlfriend. He is absolutely hacked to pieces, but he's not hacked to pieces, is he, Gus? There is a disturbing lack of violence, isn't there? There definitely is. It's kind of noticeable. I really liked reading, like, apparently they they also didn't want Ghostface to get away because he seemed, quote, wimpy, which is, like, really fucking funny. (laughs) Especially after the last two films where Ghostface spends the whole time getting knocked over. Trying to stab someone is bold enough that I think, like, you know, intent to murder makes me impressed at the kind of goal of anyone. But yeah, it's, it's. I mean, reading about why there's kind of such lack of violence in this, I was like, is this maybe the most new metal film ever made? Oh, for sure. If anyone's wondering what we're talking about, we're going to tell you because this is a podcast <laughs> and you're listening to it. This film went into production around the time of the Columbine shootings, which sparked probably like the biggest culture war that would take place throughout the new metal generation, which is the influence of violence in the media on our young people. The producers of the film, who we'll get to a little (laughs) later in production, I'm sure you can't wait to hear about these guys. They decided that Scream itself um, was, you know, a hot button issue and that they pushed to Wes Craven that can we get away with taking out a lot of the violence if having no violence whatsoever and ham up a lot of the satirical aspects? Wes Craven made it uh, like uh, either I walk or we don't make this film whatsoever kind of thing for him and uh, refused to take part if the violence was uh, taken out completely. However, it's noticeably less violent than the ultra bloody Scream 1 and 2. I feel like I wouldn't have been too conscious of it. I think like the tone thing was the biggest to me is that it's like, because I rewatched two, like one in the mind don't it's like one of those movies that i can just recall like if i close my eyes it'll play but like two i was like gotta rewatch and there's like the tone shift to me is more distinct than the violence is it's like it's so much more colorful like it's a lot more outwardly goofy and maybe that's part of it like the first one is like satirical more than it is like funny necessarily whether this one is like gag heavy i mean fucking giant it's it's a live action Scooby Doo at times, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, which I mean, I I really liked. Like, there's there's a lot of stuff. I mean, like, it's it's happening. Like, you know, everyone's wearing like neon colors. It looks like I was saying to you, it kind of looks like some of those '90s like John Waters movies, like that. Everyone's yeah, like serial mom and stuff. Yeah, like everyone's that. wearing like block colors. Like, it's I'm kind of into it. I mean, and it feels like maybe that's part of the like MTVification or whatever of these things is that it's like it becomes like Ouroboros. What is it? They're like they're snakes that eat themselves. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The snake eating its own well, ass. Totally. Like <laughs> I mean, it's like your know, nightmare is like it's it's so interesting because it's taking from this like big cultural mythology that happened. Where they're like scream 
invents a world that then references itself. Like, it's just this, like, spiral. And the idea of it to become more and more cartoonish is kind of perfect. I fully agree with this. Now, uh, from here on out, we're introduced to erstwhile uh, leading lady of the films, not Sydney Prescott, but Gail Weathers, Courtney Cox herself. And uh, what is... What is abundantly on display here, Gus, the first time you run into Courtney Well, I mean, Cox? look, I have to say, you said there's not as much violence in this film. That haircut is violence. Courtney <laughs> <laughs> Cox has the worst haircut ever. We'll put this up on the social media, but I think people's last, the lasting legacy of Scream 3, it didn't kill the franchise, but the turf bangs <laughs> on Gail Weathers are fucking out of control. It's... it's... It's impossible. Like I, I do not understand how it, it 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 doesn't make sense. And everyone else looks fine. Like you know, Neve Campbell looks great. David Arquette, you're a little bit older, doing great. But they were like, "Fuck you, Courtney Cox." Like we're gonna put you in a lime green pantsuit. We're gonna put you in red leather pants. We're gonna give you a haircut that looks like Freddy Krueger cut it. I mean, this is like mid <laughs> Friends as well, right? Like, like isn't she like peak stardom? And I don't, I mean, not that I am really a Friends follower, but like, she doesn't look like that in Friends, right? Like, they did this to her. Yeah, it sucked <laughs> in. <laughs> now, uh, Detective Kincaid, who, like, you, you're right, uh, there, this is definitely a queer-coded film. We get Patrick Dempsey from <laughs> Grey's Anatomy turns up as Detective Kincaid to tell Gail Weathers that the ghost face is back on the loose and that he's leaving behind pictures of Maureen Prescott, Sydney Prescott's uh, mother who was murdered that kicked off the whole franchise, and he's leaving behind uh, older photos of her in her 20s behind at every crime scene. A mystery's afoot. Zoinks, Scooby, what are we going to well, do? Like, one of the weird things I read about the negative reception is people were like, the mystery element isn't as present. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's literally like the mystery gang, like solving this fucking, like you're going through like doors that open out into the same hallway. Like it, this literally like is the closest you'll get to Scooby-Doo without the actual live action Scooby-Doo. Um, so Gail Weathers goes to the set of Stab Three, the film within a film, which is uh, take, which is a franchise that's been running, which is like a meta version of the events of the last two films. It's all, and it's funny to think that there was Scream referencing itself. And then there was the film within Scream referencing itself. And then running concurrently to this, you had the scary movie franchise, which was making fun of both of them at the same time. The biggest thing that freaked out, so I was like watching it with my boyfriend and he like just couldn't handle, he's like, they've mentioned Tori Spelling and David Schwimmer, which means do friends and scary movie exist in this universe? Like, the kind of like spiral you can go down of like, what is culture? Like, I mean, Oh, I guess Tori Spelling was on like um, 90210 or something, right? But you're like, you know, are they really, they're not A-list stars without those those properties. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like we talked about this on the Fast and the Furious episode, like Jar Rule is introduced with a Jar Rule song in Fast and the Furious. Is this a, a Schrodinger's Jar Rule, <laughs> a Schrodinger's David Arquette? Yeah, without, without the MCU multiverse to explain how this happens, I don't know how we, we move ahead. <laughs> well, let's move ahead, shall we? 
the production itself is shut down um, by Roger Corman, <laughs> of all people, with a, who has a little cameo here complaining that there's too much violence. Uh, Gail Weathers is looped back in with her uh, real-life husband, David Arquette, playing Dewey, who admirably has like kept the limp that he got at the end of the first film throughout this. It re- like it really feels like a weird character mode. Like, yeah, my, my character's going to be a hunchback for the rest of this franchise. I mean, yeah, I like, I guess if like Patrick Dempsey is filling the kind of like sexy boy role, maybe you can just like lean back. I mean, again, I don't know enough about David Arquette, but with all this wrestling stuff going on now, I'm like, has he always just wanted to be a character actor? He's like making, you know, bold physical choices to like, you know, stand out and shine. Have you ever seen that movie, You Can't Kill David Arquette, about his wrestling Well, yeah, I've, I've heard really good things about it. It's pretty good. It's worth Shit. a watch. So we're introduced to the real life stand-ins for the cast and uh, characters in Scream, which is like a who's who of like the late 90s and early 2000s. We've got Jenny McCarthy standing in for Rosa McGowan's character. She holds the special award of being in Scary Movie 3 and Scream (laughs) 3. We get Emily Mortimer from Shaun of the Dead uh, doing a pretty fucking spot-on American accent. She's the stand-in for um, Sydney Prescott. And she was originally supposed to be the killer at the end of the film, but it was rewritten out. And there's just so much leading you to believe that it's her, like that they just completely dump and bump her off in the third act. Uh, we also get Dion Richmond, who's standing in as a new character for Randy, Jamie Kennedy's character from the first two films. I really like him in Not Another Teen Movie. Oh. And uh, rounding out the cast, we get, as you've mentioned before, standing in for Gail Weathers, we get Blade 3's Parker Posey, who is on fucking fire in this film she's so good i don't know why she's not like a fucking superstar everything she's in she's like absolutely crushing it i mean this brings up like two two of the key points for me is that like one this movie is gay parker posey existing is gay but also like sydney prescott (laughs) sydney prescott is a lesbian like i was watching this movie and i was like this woman is a lesbian her dramatic because she's not in the movie much her dramatic like arc is that she goes from being a woods lesbian to a beach lesbian like that is (laughs) her arc in these movies Yeah, um, when she turns up wearing the, like, tie-dye jumper and the cargo pants and everything, it's like, yeah, yeah, we know. She she lives alone in the woods, like, fostering a dog doing, like, social work. Like, she's gay. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'm a huge fan of Parker Posey as uh, Gail Weathers in this, like, and when they actually get her to team up with Courtney Cox, it's, like, the best double act in recent history. Like, it's Abbott and Costello. It's um, fucking, like, Wayne's World. It's uh, Jay and Silent Bob, oh, who fuck. appear out of fucking nowhere <laughs> to walking on set. Like, it's... I know that Clerks was a big deal, and Jay and Silent Bob were kind of, like, cultural figures after chasing Amy, but, like, the idea of them doing walk-ons in this and Degrassi, the next generation, it's... I don't understand it. Well, and that's the thing, like, it's, like, I felt like... Because it's, like, okay, I know this one's going to be goofier, and I feel like it's actually, like, a lot of the gags land, like... Again, Parker Posey and Courtney Cox, so good together, but, like, knowing that Jay and Silent Bob were in it, and in my head, I, like, 
thought they were in it a lot more. And I was like, that's comedy that for me has not aged well. Like, I do not care for fucking <laughs> Kevin Smith. Uh, it was really funny. My go- my girlfriend said when they walked on screen, she's like, hey, that's you and Al. <laughs> <laughs> From here on out, Ghostface starts to bump off the members of the new cast. First to go is Jenny McCarthy in a in a screen, sorry, a scene which is just straight out of scary movie where she like attempts to like attack Ghostface in a prop room. So she's just hitting him with all these rubber knives. That's so like, good. The gags are just landing. Like this would be a couple of years before a scary movie would turn up. And it's it, like I, I can understand why people weren't in the mood for this. Like it it was a different time. Like they wanted Dracula 2000. <laughs> scary movie. <laughs> but even these, like, you know, it's like the knives don't work. She picks up some kind of board that's like, you know, made of rubber. Like I, that shit goes so hard. I also think there's like, is it an Argento reference? Like the way that she's thrown through the window. Like, cause there's like a thing where sexy women are always like thrown through plates of glass. Oh, I'm sure it's probably something like that. Knowing Wes Craven. Uh, she gets bumped off and the film shuts. Parker Posey and Gail Weathers team up to try and solve the mystery of why they keep going after, uh, why they keep leaving behind these images of Maureen Prescott. Uh, so they go to the prop room for Sunrise Studios where they run into out of nowhere fucking Carrie Fisher who's just like remarks that she would have been princess Leia if she'd slept with George Lucas. Like I can under, I can, that kind of thing. Like it's, it's so ingrained in what we know today of filmmaking is just like everything we know is referential. Everything we know is commentary. It's like Rick and Morty or something <laughs> like that to us. But back in like the year 2000, seeing something like that, I can imagine just how insanely jarring it would have been. It'd be like those, it'd be like going back in time and giving a, a Dorito to a medieval surf. <laughs> Well, and like that's the shit that ages badly. Like it's kind of not like I I reckon the jokes in this are good, and like the proper room section, you're like, yes, this is funny, and kind of like you know somewhere between scary movie and Scooby Doo, and then it's like the references that are just like it Carrie Fisher playing not Carrie Fisher, like it sucks. Like you're Jay and Silent Bob just being Jay and Silent Bob. You're like, there's not. Like, you know, there's not a joke outside the fact, like, look, like, it's the it's the Leo DiCaprio, like, sitting on the couch, like, pointing at the TV, just being like, huh. oh, check it out. Look at this. Out of nowhere, the girl from The Princess Diaries turns up and announces that she is uh, Randy Meeks' sister, and she's got a videotape for everyone where we get an extended Jamie Kennedy cameo where he spells out the rules of the trilogy to us. If this killer does come back and he's for real, there are a few things that you got to remember. Is this simply another sequel? Well, if it is, same rules apply. But here's a critical thing. If you find yourself dealing with an unexpected backstory and a preponderance of exposition, then the sequel rules do not apply because you are not dealing with a sequel. You are dealing with the concluding chapter of a trilogy. trilogy. That's right. It's a rarity in the horror field, but it does exist. And it is a force to be reckoned with because true trilogies are all about going back to the beginning and discovering something that wasn't true from the get-go. Godfather, Jedi, all revealed something that we thought was true that wasn't true. So if it is a trilogy you are dealing with, here are some super trilogy rules. 
One, you got a killer who's going to be superhuman. Stabbing him won't work. Shooting him won't work. Basically, in the third one, you got to cryogenically freeze his head, decapitate him, or blow him up. Number two, anyone, including the main character, can die. This means you, Sid. I'm sorry. It's the final chapter. It could be fucking Reservoir Dogs by the time this thing is through. Number three, the past will come back to bite you in the ass. Whatever you think you know about the past, forget it. The past is not at rest. Any sins you think were committed in the past are about to break out and destroy you. For the first, like, two Scream films, like, the idea of, like, everything having to follow these rules uh, that were set out by, like, the films themselves, sorry, horror films themselves before them, it it takes up so much of the text. But it's notoriously absent from Scream 3, which had a, a different script writer. And so to see Randy turn up and spell out that the rules of the trilogy are you have to forget everything you knew before because something's going to turn up that's going to change everything you previously knew. It's not so much jarring as much as it's almost immediately forgotten in this properly jumbled jigsaw of a film. Uh, I mean, this is, it's like easily the worst bit. And like, I'm willing to give a lot of scope for like, this movie is thrown together. It's silly, whatever. But this bit is just fucking stupid. Like, if he died mid the second film, he's like left a tape in case there's another set of murders after the ones that he's in a result. And he's just like, it's the rant of a psychotic person. Like he's being like the killer. Elliot Rogers. Well, he's like the killer will be unstoppable and you will have to behead them. And then like, they're just writing notes down like, oh yes. Okay. Like it makes absolutely no fucking sense. And if like, I guess he works in the other ones. Cause he's kind of like riffing, on everything that's happening and everyone's like, oh, classic Randy. But this one, it's like, he's like some kind of sage spirit who like, I was a scene that was truly bizarre. And it's like, I mean, it's like fan service, right? Isn't it? That it's like, everyone is so sad that Randy is dead. And you were saying like, before we started recording this, that like, you don't give a shit about Jamie Kennedy. I couldn't give a fuck about Jamie Kennedy. I mean, it's the other thing as well. Like, so um, Dion, Dion Richmond, who's playing the kind of like Randy analog. I was like, he seems fun. He's like on the fucking poster and he's like not in it. It's this weird thing that I noticed Scream 2 does as well, where it's like right at the beginning of the film, they have one black character who's like, man, in these films, we never last. Like we get killed immediately. And then they like walk off screen and are not in it again. Like Jada Pinkett Smith on the Scream 2 poster. You're like, man, she's going to bring it. And she's in one scene and gets killed immediately. Like it's, it's very weird. I find that pretty strange. And like, there's so much potential for, for Randy too. Yeah, I, I was like enjoying Randy too. I was enjoying the whole cast of extra characters that they bring in. They've got the himbo from Waiting for Guffman as well. And Patrick Warburton, Duffy from Seinfeld playing Parker Posey's like boyfriend slash bodyguard is absolutely hilarious. I worship the ground that Warburton walks on. Like he's so funny as Brock in the Venture Brothers. Like he's such a good character actor. Yeah, it's a real it's a real shame. I like that he calls Dewey Dewdrop. That's like a really good and he's got like Matrix glasses. Like it, it is sad that it's like there's so many secondary characters who are interesting. I mean, like even Lance Henriksen is in like one to two scenes and you're like lance henriksen he can do a lot of shit you know like give him something to do yeah he's fantastic so the film progresses from here as they uh realize that maureen prescott previously went by a different name and was a wannabe actress back in the day 
Uh, so they go to Lance Henriksen, who's the producer of the Stab franchise in this, to his uh, office where they confront him with the news that he knew Maureen Prescott prior to the events of the the film taking place, where we get what changes this film in like a really like bizarre sense and like gives it this like really eerie quality to it as Lance Henriksen who's basically what we foreshadowed earlier is that these films are produced by Bob and Harvey Weinstein and right here we get this story arc and like the pivotal moment of the plot which is that the a film producer sexually assaulted Sydney Prescott's mother during the 70s during uh, her time as an actress and covered it up and forced her and blacklisted her from Hollywood earlier in her career. It's played not for laughs, but like as this like running, like understanding thing that everyone gets about the, the movie business. Well, and that's the thing that's weird is it's like, oh, this movie actually through the involvement of like the Weinstein brothers, like it kind of is this Epstein-esque, like exposing that Hollywood is actually run by sex criminals. Like it's terrifying. And I read a, an interesting uh, interview with Patrick Lucea, who was the editor of the film, who talked about there must have been meetings with the Weinstein's about what they thought about this story arc, and apparently they were just totally fine with it, and were like, "Yeah, that works," which is insane to me because of the amount of studio meddling that caused this film to be the jigsaw that it is but the fact that they thought they were so unstoppable that they could just get away with this character which is like a thinly veiled analog for themselves well and that's like it's a thing that's so weird about this stuff like i really fucking hate i feel like is it like robert rodriguez or whatever like i feel like so many people who worked with miramax were like i actually hated harvey weinstein all along and this one character in my film is meant to be making fun of him and then you're like it actually has like no impact and it's you like after the fact having done nothing being like yeah I actually was roasting them the whole time whether you're like oh like i mean and i think did Wes Craven die like prior to the kind of ousting of the Weinsteins? Yeah, like a couple of years beforehand. But it's like, you know, I mean, maybe he would have been asked that question, but it's like, this is a document kind of stands a testament more than like one background character who falls over is actually meant to be a burn on Weinstein. Like, yeah, he's yeah. putting money where his fucking mouth is. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And um, so from here on out in the film, uh, everything kind of like, uh, gravitates towards this big birthday party for the director of the film who's just kind of been playing around in the margins as a comedy relief character. Um, the A couple of other characters have bumped off. There's like a, probably the most Scooby-Doo scene is that that scene with the exploding house where they're like reading the facts newspapers and like you can hear the like the like scooby-doo sound effects as they just like run around a dark and manner hey oh yeah and there's like this is this is where some of the kind of flaws come out like the kind of complicated like timed faxing of uh of notes which i think is good i have to admit if you're gonna bring in new technology why not ghost yeah. fax-based murders? Yeah, a fax-based murder is so, like, telling of the time, isn't it? Oh, fuck it. And even, like, this misunderstanding of, like, so much of the film predicates on, like, having this voice-changing box that has 
everyone's voice. Like Sydney's mum, who has been dead for like 10 years. There's like <laughs> just a box where you can like have her voice. Like it's it's fucked. Even like Dewey finds it, uses it, and it's just like, oh my God, I'm speaking as like Gail Weathers. Like it makes no fucking sense. But it's like Scooby-Doo-ish, you know? It's like somehow they do all this shit. Like it's good. Yeah, it, it all kind of comes together. Not well, but it definitely <laughs> comes together. Uh, so from here on out, they um, gravitate towards this big mansion party that's going down. Uh, a few of the characters are bumped off by Ghostface. We get some more icky Weinstein stuff as it's the producer's mansion and it's revealed that there are secret tunnels between all the guest bedrooms so we can watch people fuck. Like it's it's really like hanging a hat on a hat about this. And I think you're right. It's It's testament to like Wes Craven putting his money where his mouth is. But then it's like, how isn't this like a Pizzagate text or whatever, you know, people like, as we can see in Scream 3, like the The Hollywood pedophiles come together. Yeah, fully. (laughs) So uh, Dion is bumped off. Roman, the director, is bumped off. Uh, Emily Mortimer's character is bumped off. We get basically everyone. We haven't even mentioned the fact that it took 50 minutes for Sidney Prescott, Nev Campbell, to even turn up. She's so inconsequential to the own concluding chapter of her franchise that she doesn't even turn up until the hour mark. Well, you know, it's like, I, I guess that's part of the interesting thing about the way that they ended is it's like so hinged on her. But it's like, I, I was distracted at least. They're kind of like Courtney Cox, David Arquette, Parker Posey. By and large, they carry it well as a film that exists. Like, you know, as a kind of, as a as a finishing, you know, end statement to a trilogy, it's pretty lackluster. But, like, I, I didn't mind her presence as much. I think, like, as well, it's, like, hard to... In a way, it becomes hard in these movies where it's, like, when you have this, you know, like, iconic final girl. And it's just, like, her life is, like, constantly fucking ruined. Like, it's hard to make a movie that's goofy, hinged on someone who is just, like, suffering PTSD at all moments. So, it's, yeah. like, it's a it's a weird line where it's, like, it's it's not really an apt conclusion to scream. But then also, like, how do you how do you use a character like that and make it like, oh, they're being murdered again, but like the the way that they're going about it is different this time and they're not just like, oh, like, you know, they're not just like giving up. Final showdown between Ghostface and Nev Campbell in this is, I I have mixed feelings about it as it's revealed. And this was a last minute reveal. Like there were three different endings floating around for this film. It's revealed that the director, Roman, uh, who'd been bumped off earlier, is actually the one that's the puppet master who's been pulling the strings. And just as Randy said, he reveals something that changes the events of all the other films in that it turns out he is the illegitimate child of the sexual assaults during the 70s of Maureen Prescott, who reveals uh, himself to her only to be turned down as she says she's moved on with her life. So he films her indiscretions throughout the Woodsboro with Billy Loomis's father and gives them to Billy Loomis and Stu, which kicks off the events of the first film. Where do you stand on that, Gus? I hate it. <laughs> it's it's pretty bad. I mean, it's it's incredibly confusing. Like, they also kind of imply that it's like 
I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is like simplifying it, but that like Billy Loomis is so angry that his dad fucks that he like wants to kill someone, which is weird. But yeah. like, I mean, the biggest thing for me, I was like, this is a bad performance. And it's probably like, cause this guy was not prepared to be like, this entire series now hinges on me. But like, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, he's so uncompelling. And like, when you think about like Matthew Lillard in Scream 2, which uh, Scream Matthew, One, sorry, Scream. Yeah, one. yeah. Like Matthew Lillard's performance in Scream One is like one of the all-time greats. And even like fucking is it Skeeter, Skeet Ulrich? Like <laughs> he's, Skeeter, Skeeter. He's like he's good too. And even like in in two, like fucking Timothy Olyphant, fantastic. Yeah, and the the mom, like they've they've got like comic. They're like, I mean, obviously you can't top Matthew Lillard, but like Live Wire, like I'm a freak energy whether this guy it's just like uh, and maybe it's hard because it's like it's not fun and goofy to be like i was a child of sexual assault and now i'm involved in this and like also you know got involved in your mom's affairs like it's just it's so much information dumping in such unpleasant circumstances like it's just like you can't bring that kind of wacky energy he doesn't have the wacky energy like and for a film that's been so wacky up until this point, it's really weird and out of left field, isn't it? Yeah, it's it doesn't fit. Like, and it's it's I couldn't remember who did it, and I made a point of not looking it up. And I was like, this Roman director, Roman Bridger, is not giving me fucking anything. Yeah, you know, he was married to Jennifer Garner at this point as well. Whoa! I feel like this guy, whatever his name is, we can't even remember his name, is a footnote in history for like the ending of one big franchise and the starting of someone else's career. He, I mean, again, he must have fucking gone to Epstein Island and like sacrificed a goat or something for him to marry <laughs> Jennifer Garner and have this series hinge on him. Is like something is not right for that to have happened. Absolutely. Now, uh, he's bumped off because, of course, he is. Uh, we, by um, Dewey, lands the final shot. Uh, the film, like, kind of... I, I really like this quite nice little ending as um, everyone sits down to watch a movie. Uh, Courtney Cox and David Arquette get engaged. And uh, Sydney decides that it's okay. She doesn't have to lock her doors anymore. She's finally moved on. It's it's a nice little ending to watching a franchise which has solely been about the PTSD of this poor girl. <laughs> I mean, it does kind of feel like they adopt her though, which is like somewhat strange, but like she deserves it, you know? Yeah. She's got a little sarong, little thongs. She's become <laughs> a beach-based lesbian now. Yeah. And that that's like the, the dream for her. She's finally moved on with her life. So production-wise for this film, we've spelled out a lot of it, but basically where this came together in terms of Scream, the Scream franchise is that the biggest aspect that's different to the last two films is that Kevin Williamson, the writer that gave the films its absolute fucking like sheen and like its spark and its energy and its dna was absent for the film due to the fact that he was working on i know what you did last summer and his own personal project teaching mrs tingle so the uh the actual (laughs) 
writing credits to the film fall to a guy by the name of Aaron Kruger, who would be best known for having written all of the Transformers movies. I mean, that's kind of iconic. Having not seen any of them, but having heard about them, like, this is a man with imagination. (laughs) And his imagination is working with other people's existing properties and turning out serviceable work. That's what we love to hear. Say it with me. Serviceable. Serviceable. (laughs) I mean, the thing, like, I was like, is this, like, a a pseudonym for... Wes Craven because his name is Aaron Kruger. (laughs) I didn't even put that together. Uh, Wes Craven returns, of course, and I think the film is saved for having his touch on it. Aaron Kruger claims that uh, while uncredited, he contributed quite a bit of the majority of the script for this film. Uh, We also get Peter Deming for the look of the film, which... uh, Uh, He's one of my favorite cinematographers. Uh, In 1997 alone, he worked on Lost Highway, Austin Powers, and Scream 2. Has anyone had a better 1997 than our boy Peter Deming? Austin Powers looks so good. And like so many of the, like, I keep thinking about the bit of the, um, where the guy gets really slowly run over by the. Yeah, incredible. And it looks beautiful. There's like these crash zooms, like. It's that joke needs a great cinematographer. So, like, in, in your memory of that scene, do you remember the stuff with the the guy's family? Like, yes. where it cuts away to it? Which that's do only you, in the Australian version, right? Yeah, it's only in the international version. And I don't think the UK got it either. It's not in the American version. And that's like some of the best scenes of the whole film. I would argue that is the best joke like i i saw that film when i was six and i really think like that it that is a more successful piece of meta filmmaking i would argue than scream one and it's like (laughs) having you know this goon's family be like is he coming home for like you know for dinner tonight like it's so fucking good and then they don't they do it again there's like another goon who dies or something and they're like oh his girlfriend oh no his friends at the bar yeah. Uh, it, lookheads, I want you to hit us up on social media. Do you remember this version of Austin Powers? Is this the, with the, the goon's family being called when he's run over? Like, is it in the version of Austin Powers you watched? Let us know. We want to hear from you. Sucked in, if not. But honestly, like, I mean, the 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 Columbine of this whole thing is so interesting and i was like this really is like arguably like re-listening to your theme it's like built around like the impact of columbine is almost like you know the the traceable cultural moment of new metal yeah i think i brought this up on the some kind of monster episode that columbine just looms large over so much of new metal and so much of new metal cinema as well that it's interesting to look at Scream 3 as probably being like the most impacted of, or at least the highest profile impact of a film is this film. And it's like lack of violence. It's like pushing of the satirical edge and it's a new metal soundtrack. <laughs> but I mean, and that's the thing that's strange is like, like I'd never really pieced together that it's like, oh, like, when you boil it down scream is about like two high schoolers who like go on a killing rampage at their school but like i always think of it in the kind of matrix context where it's like it's so 
cool in the matrix like they're like trench coats guns like it, it's so senseless where they're like i mean the violence in scream is brutal but then also like skeet Ulrich is hot like i can understand <laughs> desiring wanting to be skeet Ulrich. I, I get what you mean and like uh it's funny like sorry it's not funny at all but scream like would actually like impact real life murders there's like the casey joe aldrich murder of 2006 where the criminals taped all of their like rampage itself and were just like basically just completely influenced by Stu and billy loomis from the first film but i mean that's 2006 and we're still having the culture war to this date about whether or not violence is impacting kids. Well, and it seems like, like I read this book about um, like the satanic panic recently. Um, that was quite good. Um, edited by Kiola Janice, who wrote House of Psychotic Women. Definitely worth a read. Oh, nice. Yeah, really good. But like, it, it was this thing where I was thinking about where it's like, I guess like the satanic panic stuff is already kind of winding down after the 80s. But it's like Columbine is this like concrete thing. Like you don't need to rely on this like Christian idea that it's like, no, like, satanic messages are being like subliminally brought like there's a moment where like the kind of reactionary american you know like white bread public are like we don't need to find hidden messages like it's that there's like you know canonically present things in media like it feels like there's just like the the state of you know suburban america is just like want some reason for like why bad things in the world happen it's almost as if like we're still like 20 years out from columbine now and yet it's just permanently stuck in people's subconscious now as like and not only did it happen and like what people are still dealing with the fallout of it yeah, well, and like I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Brady Corbett's film Vox Lux, which I argue is like about the cultural impact of Columbine on like a media landscape or whatever. But I was like reading into it, and it's this weird thing. Like, it's just in a way that it's like the aesthetics of everything in the Matrix were already around, but somehow the Wachowskis had like crystallized it in a moment. Like, Columbine is not the first American school shooting. It is not the biggest American school shooting. And it wasn't at the time. Like it just somehow comes at this moment where it like crystallizes all these things that like, I guess America was concerned about in the turn of the century. Like it's, it's really weird to think like, why is it about this? That has like a fucking stranglehold on like, you know, American sensibility. Like, it's really weird. And I mean, like, that is part and parcel of the new metal genre of filmmaking is that, like, they weren't the first films to, like, The Matrix wasn't the first film, Blade wasn't the first film to develop these ideas, but they all crystallized at this turn of the millennium melting pot and kind of continued on from there. Well, and it's like, it's this strange thing that's like the backwardsness of it, where it's like, Scream 3 doesn't comment on that in any way but like scream one like pre comments on it like scream one essentially hinges and they talk about this when they're kind of exposed like uh billy loomis and is it Stu? what's his name like matthew lumaca when they're like it's like are you violent because of tv or does tv make you violent it's like 
addressed in Scream 1 and then Scream 3 instead is like, no, we're going to talk about how Hollywood is full of like sexually abusive elites. Like, Yeah. And like, it's like they were worried that pe- that this film was going to like influence real life murders. It's like, you already made that film and it did. <laughs> I think they need to be more concerned about um, encouraging Nick Cave to make Red Right Hand 2. Woof, 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 woof. I think that's as good a time as any. Let's talk about the soundtrack. You do it like this. Red Right Hand 2. I'm I'm I was truly surprised to read that he wrote that for this film. I cannot imagine Nick Cave sitting down and being like, what a wonderful picture, the Scream series. <laughs> well, Red Right Hand is used in every one of the films and part it, it it's like identity as a song is tied to the scream franchise and it probably kept like heroin in nick cave's veins <laughs> like for years to come so that he could be happy and healthy and touring israel <laughs> well i mean and that's it like it's funny as well like I feel like maybe the first movie, again, I don't have it in front of me, so I can't remember the first soundtrack, but it feels like the first soundtrack is like a little bit more varied, maybe a little bit 90s. It's just like so interesting that the soundtrack is like Slipknot, System of a Down, Power Man 5000, Static X, Seven Dust, Nick Cave, Incubus. Like he, Executive produced by Creed. <laughs> yeah, he sticks out like a fucking sore thumb. Like, And it's like, yeah, you do need, like in the film, you need the the red right hand, but it's like really weird that none of that musical DNA is in any of the rest of the soundtrack. Uh, and like, like I was like going into this, like I remembered Scream 3 pretty well, but I was like, oh, I guess I noticed the like the soundtrack and then like smack bang 30 seconds into the film and you get What If by Creed playing over the top of like a, a nude shower scene. Like it's it's so funny the amount of like Creed that is pushed in this film during that amazing set piece in like where they return to the old Prescott house, which is like now a movie set on stab three and Sydney's uh, bedroom is recreated like note for note, except now she has a massive Creed poster taking up an entire wall. I'd spent a long time being like, is that in the original? And it really freaked <laughs> me out. I love that uh, during like a pivotal shot in that you can see that Creed's website is www.creednet.com. <laughs> Fuck yeah. I mean, that's definitely... I looked it up. It's not a real website anymore. If anyone wants to register the domain name creednet.com, look heads, <laughs> we are listening. We we would love it. We'll make it our playground. <laughs> I mean, look, the, the one question I have about Creed is like, I was like not sentient around this time. I was but a small child, but like... This film posits that hot chicks listen to Creed, which does not make sense to me. They're just a funny band, full stop. This song, this movie is bookended and starts with a Creed song. It's the credits and the beginning of the film. And like Creed were superstars around this time, but no one seemed to notice just how totally ridiculous they were as a band. Like have a look at the front cover to Human Clay and uh weathered like those are some of the worst album covers of like recent memory scott stapp is like a completely insane person uh i i don't know have you ever read the story about scott stapp um like having a manic episode and like attempting suicide uh at a where he like is saved by ti the rapper 
who happened to be passing by and he's like made it his life's work to try and reach back out to T.I. And T.I. just wants nothing to do with this crazy ass white boy. <laughs> I have to say that's like particularly damning for T.I. is the guy who uh, has found and continually encouraged his, uh, Iggy Azalea's career, but he doesn't want anything to do with Scott Stapp is like <laughs> a real, real damning uh, assessment. I mean, like, the thing that's weird about Creed is... Oh, I mean, okay, I'm looking at the human clay cover and you're actually wrong. This fucking rules, Sean. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but it's like, like, Incubus, I get that it's like, Incubus may be in a similar zone, but, like, the dude from Incubus is hot. Like, I, I don't get Creed as, like, you know, I'm a normal teen girl and I love this band. Yeah, there's, there's like, live posters on Meadow Soprano's wall, like... Uh, in the Sopranos, like live and Creed around this time as these butt rock superstars. It's it's such a bizarre like time for music and especially like for them to like be approached for Scream. Like there's nothing spooky about Creed. They're like ludicrously Christian. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it doesn't sit like the soundtrack by and large because I like watched this consciously being like, okay, gonna talk about the movie and i think you were saying it's like a lot of inspired by i didn't really notice it except there's like uh while the first murder is happening there's like a really sick new metal riff and i was like this is sick and then otherwise like did not notice it in the film at all yeah a bit of marco beltrami's score uh he returns from the earlier scream films and would later go on to do Resident Evil. Like, it is quite grinding and, like, hard rock at times in, in like, stark contrast to the other Scream films. But it, it's in no way, like, a new metal soundtrack. This is definitely me and Al's favorite music from and inspired by... There's even a Creed music video with David Arquette. <laughs> Fuck yeah. But it's definitely, like, this is, like, post... Like, you have the remnants of some of, like, Slipknot, System of a Down, like, pretty big ones. But then, like, I feel like a lot of these bands are kind of the, like, after the golden age. Like, this is a little bit of the, like, leftovers or something. I'm, I, I, I disagree with you. I think Shit. the year 2000 is just warming up for Static X and Godsmack. And Seven Dust, the band we have not talked about enough on this podcast. <laughs> I, fuck. I mean, I, I'm not saying historically, you know, new metal still around. I mean, these are just bands that did not trickle down to me. Like American Pearl. Who the fuck is American Pearl? Hard <laughs> rock band. Oh, yeah. Opening for the cult. Yeah, it's like, it, it feels niche to me, you know? It's like, and again, a Wait and Bleed, like, remix? Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? It's not a particularly good remix at all. I have I haven't listened to it. I think Wait and Bleed is one of the most overrated Slipknot songs. As someone who stands Slipknot, I think that song is like pretty whatever. Yeah. It's no psychosocial. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> now, I think that's going to take us very succinctly to our bodies hit the floor score. The bodies hit the floor score. The bodies hit the floor score. Gus, as a listener of the pod, I'm going to let you take this one away from me. Let's hear your bodies hit the floor score. I would like to quote Al Bates, who is not present, but change the word stars to bodies hitting the floor. Ooh, scream three, more like scream three and a half bodies hit the floor. Nice. Speak on that, brother. 
why I rated it three and a half bodies hitting the floor. Mm-hmm. I think it's fun. You know, it's it's like not a good movie. It's not a great movie as a screen film. You know, the Scream franchise at its peaks is up there, canonical great. Scream three as as a as a you know part of the universe, not the best ever, but three makes it seem totally average. I think it needs a half star because there is stuff going on that is compelling. It's colorful. It looks good. You've got Serena's mom from Gossip Girl. I'm, you know, three bodies easily on the floor. I had a good time. Scooby-Doo energy. Cut someone in half. Throw the throw the upper limbs on the floor with them. Yeah. I'm going to agree completely with you and give you a three and a half bodies hitting the floor as well. Because I think um, if you had a shot for every time we said Scooby-Doo energy in this episode, you would be absolutely drunk off your ass right now this movie is a live action scooby-doo cartoon like i had a blast with it the mystery is like um kind of doesn't make any sense just through the sheer like like jigsaw like nature of it being strung together from various rewrites and script pages only being delivered on the day it was actually shot but it all hangs together it's not nearly as bad as people make this out uh as like a scream film it's probably like after scream four in terms of my ranking i'm very much looking forward to the new upcoming scream film as well uh i think it's better than it better than it is and if you haven't seen this film in like 10 or so years or like you've never seen this film before i don't think you're going to be as disappointed as you think hell yeah I know. I, t- I totally agree. I mean, I think Scream 5 looks pretty bad because I I think one thing that's good about this film that Scream 5 does not appear to have going for it is it doesn't seem to have any hook. Like, it's just like, what if there was Scream? You know, I like that this one is like, what if it's not about Sidney Prescott and we just make Courtney Cox look awful and they run around in studios? Like, Stan, that's a take. Well, supposedly they only had Sydney Prescott, Nev Campbell for 20 days of shooting, which is why she had such diminished role. And I always love when that happens in films, when the biggest star like kind of takes a, a step back from the film because they're working on their career only to have their career just completely stall on them afterwards. Oh, I like, I was reading where it's like, oh, like she couldn't, she was too busy with her schedule. And I looked at what she was shooting and I was like, I've never heard of these movies before. <laughs> <laughs> like for me, Nev Campbell is Sydney Prescott and the girl from the craft. Like that's, that's her legacy really. I mean, a great legacy. Like, why fucking do some other shit? I call it a legacy. Yes. <laughs> now, to take us out on today's episode, I want to play Bullets by Creed. Not because it has anything to do with this movie, but only because I want to post the incredibly psycho music video for this song on our social media later. Gus, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in. What have you got to plug, big dog? God, not too much. Uh, I'm trying to think. I'm just doing like, you know, academic work. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't want to read my like abstract essay about Chiming Liang that's just been published. But you know, you know what I actually will promote right now that is essentially specifically for you, Sean? I love it. I know that you love hog-based content, right? You love mm-hmm. to know what the, the pigs are up to. Yeah. You are also compelled by the life of my sister. 
what I'm going to plug is my sister's new job. She got some like crazy biosecurity job with the government and is now aerial hunting pigs from a helicopter. Holy fucking shit. She's fucking Teddy Roosevelt. Hell yeah, baby. (laughs) What a fucking job. Uh, If anyone is keen on uh, checking out what Take a Look Around is up to, we're on social media as Take a Look Around pod on Instagram, Take a Look pod on Twitter. We don't really check the Facebook. If you want to know what Gus's sister is up to, please (laughs) check out Bristle Up magazine. Hell yeah. Uh, And for more amazing wild hog content. (laughs) Thank you again, Gus. It's been a pleasure. This is Bullets by Three. I think they shoot us!